Hello, it's Gabby here. On this podcast, I'm usually talking to different creatives about their experiences of grief and how they've processed it creatively. But today's episode will be a little bit different. It'll be a solo episode and I'll be sharing my findings from my master's thesis, which was on grief or loss and how performance, community and poetry can impact grief and loss. Part of that research was also around the history of perspectives on death and grief in Western society. And so I wanted to share some of that history today. And it was inspired by my interview with Raphael Rech early on in the podcast, where he asked me the question, why does death have a negative connotation? And I gave a little bit of a summary in the episode we did together, but I also wanted to expand on it here. You might be surprised to know that it hasn't always been the case that death has been an uncomfortable topic or that it's been shunned and sort of swept under the rug. It's a really interesting history, so I hope you find this valuable. And if you have any questions after the episode or you just want to give me some feedback or thoughts, please get in touch via the Grief Cocoon Instagram or Facebook pages. To begin with, I wanted to share a quote by Rob Moll, who wrote The Art of Dying, Living Fully Into the Life to Come. He writes, when death is public, it is harder for the rest of us to be afraid of it. There is less mystery as we see how the physical body ceases to function. There is less fear as we see caregivers assist the dying in their last moments. There is more hope as we watch, even for a moment, the veil lifted and a dying person drawn into eternity. When we've seen a friend or a loved one die, it's easier to learn to die. We can rehearse in our minds our own death. We learn what to do when others we love face death and we live better lives with eternity in mind. I share this quote because regardless of whether you believe in eternity or not, it really points to some of the ways that our relationship with death, humankind's relationship to death, has changed over time. It speaks about the real visibility of death that is often not afforded to us nowadays. I was lucky enough to have witnessed two people in my family, my mom and my grandma, slowly die and to be with them in their last moments. And that changed my life forever. And this podcast actually probably wouldn't exist without having those experiences. And I guess I just wanted to flag that this context, this information that I'm giving around the history is specifically around Western perspectives. I might share some Eastern perspectives for comparison, but really it's focused on the ways that grief and death and the perspectives on them have changed in Western societies because we seem to be particularly bad at dealing with death, at accepting death, at knowing what to do and how to grieve. So not that there's one way, but just grieving in general. And uh, there's a lot of discomfort. And so this is something that is really that I'm really passionate about sharing. There were quite a few factors that affected perspectives on death and grief in Western societies. And 
They included the Industrial Revolution that started in the late 1700s, the medicalization of death, which I'll explain a little later, and also the loss of rituals following World War II. Through some of these events, uh, a big change happened, which was the creation of the funeral industry. And that really shifted our the community members' relationship with death on a real physical level. Before the funeral industry was created, there was actually quite elaborate rituals and real openness around death. In an article that I was reading today, it talks about the Victorian era of the late 1800s as being obsessed with death. It's when Queen Victoria lost her husband, Prince Albert, and for 40 years, for the rest of her life, she actually openly mourned his death and wore black clothing and had these rituals that she had her maids do in honor of him. At that time, death was quite a common occurrence. People didn't live up until the ages that they're living now. They often expected and did die young. And so people openly prepared and planned for their death while they were young and dying was an open and ongoing conversation. It's been said that people would know what their loved one wanted um, at the time of death and it was all sort of out in the open and there was no need for guessing. There were strict actual protocols protocols and rituals around death and mourning which were quite extensive and didn't have short time spans. People were kind of encouraged to to mourn and grieve. And at the same time, there was actually a few books that were written that gave people the procedures and protocols of specifically dying well or of a good death. And that included Ars Moriendi, which translates to the art of dying, and they're two related Latin texts that date all the way back to 1415 and 1450, but they were actually active in the Catholic and Protestant church, specifically followers of those um, churches, and they were offering advice on the procedures and customs around a good death. And this is, I guess, a sign also that there was more, a lot more kind of guidance around rituals and a lot more clearer outlines of how to do things when someone dies and how to die. And that's something that has sort of faded over time. It's worth stating that a lot more people at that time identified as Christians and practiced and followed particular religions. Uh, so he wasn't as secular. And while we've learned, I guess, over time, you know, there are a lot of uh, things that happen within religions that are not so great and productive. One thing that maybe it did offer people was that guidance and instruction around death and funeral rites and dying and what to do. Priests and spiritual advisors were also playing a bigger role when it came to someone's end of life. There was value placed on the spiritual care of the person who was dying, not just the physical care that we often see today. Death was just an accepted and natural part of life that people 
couldn't really turn away from because there was also quite a high infant mortality rate in those days. And so death didn't just get to older people, it was affecting babies as well. And because there was no funeral industry, the responsibility of taking care of the dead and, and the dying lied with the community and the family of that person. So when it came to washing the body, clothing the body, preparing the body for a funeral or for a wake, those responsibilities sat with the actual close family or close community members of that person. There was no funeral industry or undertakers to come in and take the body to a morgue and prepare the body for burial or for cremation. It was all sort of within sight, within the physical proximity of the family. There was no distancing yourself or hiding or facing away from what the physical death meant and what it meant to die and and what needed to happen when someone died because it was such a regular practice and it was done within the surrounding community of the person that died. And this leads me to also talking about how people often died at home or usually died at home because there were no hospitals or palliative care units where people could go and have a comfortable death there there was no kind of medicalization of death at the time and so this is another reason why people were so comfortable with death because it happened right in their home and it happened next to them in visible sight. Compare that to nowadays where in Australia only 14% of people die at home, even though 70% of people want to die at home. That's according to the Grattan Institute's Dying Well report. In other Western countries as well, there has been an upward trend of people being more likely to die in institutions than at home. And yes, that comes back to the seeing death as a medical problem so instead of seeing it as something that will eventually happen to everybody and that is inevitable the medical system has kind of stepped in now and sort of made it their job to extend people's life and I'm not against that at all I guess you know everybody would like to live longer and in some cases where the condition or the disease that someone has actually you know there is a chance of uh, taking it away or treating it and giving that person a quality of life back then that is really amazing but there are other cases where the people who are dying or the person who's dying is doesn't have a quality of life and yet they're put on life support and are breathing but don't have that quality of life and they end up dying in hospital. That actually happened with my mom where I didn't know it at the time and I didn't interpret it properly at the time but she she did say that she wanted to go home and me being the youngest firstly I didn't actually realize what 
she that it was an option I didn't know that we could take her home I guess now we have a general trust that you know medical professionals are the best people to handle the end of life of someone and and although we can visit the person in hospital we can stay with the person it generally means that we're kind of apart from them and sometimes I guess it can overshadow the fact that maybe they really just want to be in the company of the people they love and in the comfort of their own home and now I guess we know that if you don't know it is an option for to take the person home and for them to go home at the end of life if they know that they're dying and they just want to die in peace it is a possibility but that kind of medicalization of death medical way of looking at death as something that should be dealt with by doctors and by professionals has affected our connection to death and our connection to dying because it's no longer happening in the home it's now happening in institutions in walls behind walls and behind curtains that we don't often get the privilege of opening or don't see and don't open often enough while community members and family friends used to be involved in the end of life of someone because they were at home and people chipped in and took care of each other nowadays it needs to be usually someone pretty close to you that you know dying for you to actually witness that process and to be a part of those end of life um, rituals or procedures and even if you know with with someone that you that you are close to you often don't get to take part in those procedures that's often then taken care of by the funeral director or people in the medical industry so i've spoken about the industrial revolution where funeral the funeral industry started to develop and I've spoken about the medicalization of death where death and dying has been moved from the home and from the community to institutions and the medical industry. So you can see that with the combination of both of those you get the the process of dying being kind of hidden and then the the post-death procedures and rituals being taken over by the funeral industry which meant that community members or and family members didn't have to have as much of a hands-on approach in terms of the practical things that were involved after a person died. The third thing I'd like to speak about is the loss of rituals following World War II. As I mentioned earlier the Victorian era marked by Queen Victoria in Britain was a really influential period marked by an acceptance of death and an openness to mourn and grieve and practice elaborate rituals. This period ended in 1901 and then the First World War happened and that was the beginning of some changes because with the First and Second World War there was 
large-scale deaths and the death toll was kind of unprecedented and because of that it's been said that that forced people to tweak the rituals and the practices that they had that were quite elaborate and in order to keep up with the demand of soldiers dying they had to simplify and change some of those rituals funerals were simplified and emotionally people were encouraged to be more stoic about the deaths and to kind of hold back and contain their their emotionality in the face of so much grief and loss and that's said to have come from the government um, from Britain at the time and that also influenced the rest of the world. It wasn't really feasible for families and relatives to be grieving and mourning for extensive periods of time or to have elaborate funerals and rituals. Especially for work, the working class, it was also beyond their capacity to pay lots of money for, for funerals and especially if there was more than one person in the family that had died. So this is when attitudes towards death and dying and grief and mourning really changed because it was on a wide scale and and the elaborate rituals that and protocols that were in place could no longer be maintained on that scale. So death and dying kind of took a backseat and were not as openly spoken about or as acknowledged in a way because there was too much of it happening all at the same time and it's quite understandable when there's a a major war that that reduces and decimates a population and a society and it's not no surprise that it did cause people to kind of hold back on expressing their grief and emotions because it would have been a kind of an endless cycle in some ways and so and I guess this can be seen in marginalized or in underrepresented communities nowadays where if there's multiple or numerous deaths in the family in close uh, time frames then it's really hard and you know this is kind of going to um, the idea of the concept of cumulative grief where loss after loss is piled on top of each other it's really hard to know where to begin or how to grieve when you're experiencing and grieving multiple losses and so in some ways it can be easier to cope by not processing or not fully engaging with the grief and not giving it the space that it needs. So on top of these three events that I've spoken about, there was also the pathologization of grief, which means looking at grief in a pathological way. So and giving it a name and a criteria and a diagnosis 
It was in the 1950s that practitioners and researchers began categorizing grief in terms of normal and abnormal, which is the pathological side. This was supported by the rise of individualism in Western societies. And at the moment, there is a diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatrists and Psychologists that uh, is being used to identify disorders. And there is one called the Prolonged Grief Disorder. And that is when an individual experiences intense longing for a person who's died or a preoccupation with thoughts of that person and it actually sets out a particular period of time so for a diagnosis I'm reading this from the American Psychiatric Association website so for a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder the loss of a loved one had to have occurred at least a year ago for adults and at least six months ago for children and adolescents. In addition, there needs to be at least three symptoms nearly every day for at least the last month prior to the diagnosis. And this, the symptoms can include identity disruption, such as feeling as though part of oneself has died, a marked sense of disbelief about the death, avoidance of reminders that the person is dead, intense emotional pain such as anger, bitterness, sorrow related to the death, difficulty with reintegration, so problems engaging with friends, pursuing interests or planning for the future. There And their other symptoms are emotional numbness, feeling that life is meaningless and intense loneliness. As well as this, the person's bereavement needs to last longer than might be expected based on social, cultural or religious norms. And apparently about 7 to 10% of bereaved adults will experience the persistent symptoms of prolonged grief disorder. And for children, it's about 5 to 10% will experience depression post-traumatic stress disorder and or prolonged grief disorder following bereavement or a loss of someone. As you might feel just from listening to some of the criteria, it's, it's really tricky and especially around the expectations and relationship to the social and cultural norms because in Western society, the expectations around grief and how long someone grieves for or how intense their grief is, isn't necessarily a healthy or normal expectation because the openness around grief has diminished and it's really hard to know what grief is meant to feel like or how long it's meant to last or what it's meant to look like we just don't get those references those cultural references anymore and as you might have heard like the the criteria the symptoms are quite normal for anybody who's lost a loved one and so on top of that we know that no two people grieve the same and there is no particular time frame where one can say that they're done with grief. I think it's quite a complex thing to 
to have a disorder around something that's quite natural for a, a life experience such as loss. Having said that, there might be people who really do benefit from having a diagnosis and getting treatment, uh, being prescribed medication if they really haven't been able to slowly find their way through the grief and actually find the will to live again. Prolonged grief disorder is actually the newest disorder that was added to the DSM-5 and it was only updated last year in March and since then there's been quite a bit of controversy around the addition of grief, prolonged grief as a disorder. But going back to I guess the factors that changed perspectives around grief, the the creation and the development of psychiatry and psychology and looking at people as individuals and not necessarily just as community members, that has affected the way that grief is being viewed and it's been less viewed as a communal process and experience and more as an individual one and that can also tie in with the real isolation that comes with grief after a loss especially if the loss you've experienced is seen as unnatural or abnormal for someone at your age or someone in your position so whether it's the loss of a child or if you're a young person who's lost a parent that can be even more isolating. And so with the rise of individualism and then also the rise of secularism in Western societies where there's where there are less and less people who are kind of looking to religion uh, for guidance and instruction. And even with the religious rituals, they've been reduced and sort of watered down to work with the pace and way of living in Western society that is centered around productivity and capitalism. It's meant that there's not really much room or space to grieve or to commune with others around grief and have open and comfortable conversations about it. All of these things that I've spoken about tie in together. And so there's the, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of individualism and secularism, the pathologization of grief and also the medicalization of death. It's very hard to kind of pinpoint one or the other as being the defining reason for the changes over time in perspectives. But I wanted to share actually something that challenged particularly the medicalization of death. It was in the 1960s and an English woman named Cecily Saunders decided to challenge the medical model by starting the hospice movement, which I guess can be known as the, the palliative care movement. It was an alternative to the medical approach to death. It was about placing dying back into the hands of the community. 
it was about saying that we know that these people are dying and we want to make sure that they have the best end of life they can. While there is still an emphasis on comfort in palliative care, it has also unfortunately moved towards the medical model of dying where it's also about prolonging life. There has been some pushback at the grassroots level in the past couple of decades with community groups deciding that they do want a more hands-on approach, that they do want to be more involved in the dying and the funeral processes. Some examples include a community group who decided to actually start painting and decorating their own coffins and organizing their own funerals. There is also a movement towards more natural burial where it's more there's more environmentally friendly options for after death and for families that want to bury their loved one or have a more environmentally friendly funeral. While it might be a bit of a slow process and a bit of a long way to get there, I do really think that eventually we will come back to the basics and we will start to accept more and more that death and end of life are just natural parts of the life cycle and that death isn't the opposite of life. Actually, death is the other side of birth. And when we have a when we hear about a birth, we are so excited and we want to celebrate and we want to be there and we want to see the baby and we want to do all those things and buy gifts. And it's interesting that when it comes to the other end of life, People are sometimes too scared to face that or to see what the person looks like or to talk with the person who's dying because they don't know what to say or they don't want to make them sad or they feel too emotional themselves to be able to approach them. But, you know, we all need connection and especially in grief and dying I think those two particularly can be very isolating things and we all deserve company and love and care at that time regardless of how uncomfortable it might be for those around us and likewise with grief it shouldn't be such an isolating experience as much as it is now I really hope that one day the tides will turn and death and grief will be seen and dying will be seen for what they are, which is just a natural, mysterious and beautiful part of life. I hope it was helpful to just get a better understanding of why it is so uncomfortable in our modern society to talk about things like grief and to know that it wasn't always that way and there are some changes happening that are making it a little bit more or maybe less uncomfortable to talk about it or to educate people. You know, with social media there are a lot of accounts now 
uh, including the grief cocoon that you know talks about grief in different ways and provides knowledge on different aspects of it if you have any questions or you want me to elaborate on certain things a little bit more please feel free to send me a message through the grief cocoon pages on instagram or facebook just look up the grief cocoon and you'll find it before i go i just wanted to let you know about the grief cocoon app which is available in the apple and google app store if you haven't heard about it yet it's um, a space for community members to connect with each other to find resources to access self-paced courses and to receive content that is useful including weekly self-care tips and also a page where you can find just hope and words of wisdom there's different folders like the podcast folder there is also poetry where you can read uh, poems by others about their loved ones or you can even submit your own and it can be posted there uh, so yeah I'd love for you to check it out if you haven't already and it's just very simple to use and I think you will get a lot out of it you can find it by searching for the grief cocoon on your app store whether it's uh, the play store if you're an android user or the app store for apple and you can download it and go from there if you've gotten this far then thank you so much for listening to this episode and if you found it valuable then please feel free to share it with someone or give us a rating or a review on the platform that you listen to this on I will speak to you soon and I really hope that you are moving gently with your grief and that you're giving yourself some self-compassion and kindness as you move through it. This episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people listening today.